It's good to be back here uh, before you this morning. Uh, it was great to go on vacation. It was great to have all last week uh, here and getting my feet back in the saddle again. It's always good to do that. Uh, it's easy to get thrown off the horse really quick. <laughs> What's going on? We've been taking our time, those of you who are guests this morning, we've been taking our time talking about discipleship matters, and that is God's transformation for disordered lives. And I was realizing that we deal and we struggle with lots of different things because of the flesh, because of the world, because of sin, and we need God to help us in that. And how do we do that? God has given us the formation of that through the gospel, through his word, and through discipleship and learning to follow Christ, learning to follow God, to put on the mind of Christ, to be like Christ, uh, to not to be um, comfortable in this world, but to be aliens, to be strangers, to long for our heavenly home, for the kingdom that God is building for us. And so we've been going through that, and one of the things that we discussed was having a high view of God's word, and then the last few weeks, Pastor Rob has been taking us through the Lord's Prayer, looking at a high view of God through the Lord's Prayer and how that impacts our relationship with the Lord. How praying doesn't change God, but it actually changes us. And so he's been going through that in, in a, well, not in a few weeks, in another month or so, Pastor Rob will be back and he'll be finishing up those messages on the Lord's Prayer and how that impacts and changes our life and how God uses that in our relationship with him. This morning, we're going to wrap up this idea um, and the important one on the high view of God and how that transforms our life, how that changes us. And I'm not talking about just knowing that God is high, that he is above all things, but actually how that affects not only our thinking, but affects our actions. And it's very important. One of the things that we learn, how that the high view of God changes us, is, is that last week, as, we, uh, as Pastor Ralph was talking, is that we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide because of what we learn about praying. God wants us to come in a relationship to him. We don't have to hide from God, and that's, that's futile anyway, just like it was futile for Adam and Eve to hide from God in the garden. God knew exactly where they were. He found them, uh, and he gave them the chance to come to him. We don't have to perform. It's not a performance, and sometimes we use performance to hide from God or to hide ourselves from other people, um, and we don't want them to know us and, or know that we know God or love God, um, but we don't have to perform. And we don't have to shout as if to that God, you know, doesn't hear us. Just like, uh, you know, the, all the pagans did when they were offering sacrifices to their, their idols and they were shouting and wailing and trying to get their um, small God attention. And Elisha is like, hey, maybe just shout a little louder. Maybe he's, he's sleeping or, you know, he, he doesn't notice you, you know. Uh, we don't have to shout and we don't have to worry Jesus said, why do you worry? You know, God, we are God's children. If God takes care of the sparrow and, and those uh, in the field, why, you know, he takes care of his children. 
And we learn a lot from the Lord's prayer and God's provision and in our relationship to God through that. And that's what Pastor, Pastor Rob's been talking about. This morning, as we think about Psalm uh, 62, verse 11 through 12, we read the psalm, what the psalmist says about God. And he says, Oh, God, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. Powerful might, explosive power, all-reaching power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. All of our love, our continual love, belongs, should be poured out to God. For you will render to man according to his work. Everything belongs to God. God is amazing. God is great. And he is high. And he deserves our Love and adoration or worship. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, in one of his books that we've read uh, a little bit ago, said this, and that we think with our feelings. I want you to think about that. We think with our feelings. Oftentimes, our feelings control our thinking. And so sometimes knowing something is true isn't always good enough. And, and he, Ferguson was getting to the point that our emotions, our feelings, sometimes get in the way of a truth. You know, stars, meteor showers, aurora borealis, if you've been trying to pay attention to all the things going on. And I love the fact that Randy Small does that because uh, I forget. It's like, oh, yeah, the aurora is out tonight. I should go out and look for it. Part of it is I grew up in Alaska. I'm used to seeing it, right? Uh, and I forget how amazing it is. And when I see the pictures, I'm like, man, God is just amazing. Uh, the mountains, right? But viewpoint, a viewpoint, our viewpoint matters more than knowledge and thoughts and ideas. You know, have you ever thought about that? But a viewpoint is different than just an idea or thought or an assumption, um, sometimes we think of knowledge and we think, well, I know this to be true or I know something, therefore, I, I know it and, and that's all I need to know. Therefore, I'm good. My life is good. My things are good. My, the things going on around me are good. But the reality is just because you know something doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually affecting change in your life. We live in the Northwest, and I always get, yeah, tonight we're going to have this absolutely amazing meteor shower. You should go out and see it, and I just chuckle. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be cloudy. <laughs> um, you should go see the, the moon tonight. It's going to be amazing, right? Uh, in the last few nights, I've enjoyed the moon, but most of the time when, you know, something amazing is going to happen, yeah, it'll be cloudy. You know, this, you won't see this happen for the next 25 years. That's all right. I won't see it then either. <laughs> right? Your viewpoint matters. I love, I always tell my kids, still I always remember, I come over the mountain, or I come over uh, and I get to the top of the crest of Mountain View and there is all of Ferndale and there's Bellingham. The fog is, this is my favorite time of the year and the mountain is right dead center in front of me. That viewpoint of seeing, I can see everything. Is important. You know, travelers and adventurers, for years, when they didn't know where to go, 
They climbed a mountain so they could see what was before them. They climbed the biggest tree that they could find because even though they knew they were headed in the right direction, they did not know what was going to be in front of them. They needed a vantage point. They needed a good viewpoint to see more, to know what was ahead, to help them with their path ahead. This morning, I want to look at four great illustrations why a high view of God and uh, affects change in our life, and it's important. Um, the main points are taken from the main points uh, from Tim Chester's book, You, you Can Change. You can change. And he, his basic points is, is that God is great, that God is glorious, and, God, and, and about the goodness of God and the graciousness of God. And those points of God really instruct our life and help us in changing our life. One of the things that, just like Ferguson said, is that he mentions in the book, as a lot of people know those things, they know that God is great, they know that God is glorious. They know that God is good. They know that God is gracious. But yet, it doesn't change their life. And why is that? And so we'll be talking about this very thing this morning. The first one is this, and that is uh, that we look at this, is that God is great. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and we already uh, looked at the first few verses of this this morning in Sunday school. And the fact that uh, in verse 9, it says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald good news. And so he's saying, hey, go up to the top of the mountain and herald this great news about how great God is. Talk to them. The same idea, the concept of the good news or the gospel that God has told us to proclaim. And they said in verse 10, he says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Behold, look at your God, this great God. But listen to how he describes God's greatness in verse 12. He says this about, so we can fully understand that God is great. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Right? The seas. All the waters of the earth is what he's describing. So how, who has measured all the, the... You know, we have scientists who have, to have estimated and measured out and estimated the volume of the sea. And it's in the miles squared, the volume of the sea. And, and they've done that. But who has done it in the hollow of their hand? And, of course, Isaiah is talking about God. And he says, And who has marked off the, the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? God is great. Measuring things is what we tend to do. We tend to measure our life to many different things. We tend to measure about what we can do and how good we are, or what abilities we have, or what I get to do, or uh, what I can hold on to, right? Sometimes that's a measure, is what I can keep working uh, in our life. And there's a lot of different things that we use to measure. But look at 
what he talks about in verse 12, who can measure the waters in the hollow of the hand. The world's oceans combine, uh, you know, 322 cubic miles of water. That's a lot of water. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Yet God, in creating the earth, only needed to measure out enough water in the hollow of his hand to say, there you go, that's all you need. <laughs> that's, that's God. That's, a, that's the greatness of God. Then in, he goes, and marked off the heavens with a span. You know a span is an average of six to nine inches. It's from a span is from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky, right? Now, if you're like Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball player that's over seven foot, you know, it's like over a foot. His span is like a foot. Most people, though, it's like six to nine inches, right? Mine's more on the six inch, you know, my palm is bigger than my span. But, but yeah, so I'm on the smaller scale. Some of, some of you have bigger hands. But listen to what God does. God marks off the heavens with a span. That's, that's amazing. We tend to use all sorts of different measurements when we measure th certain things. You know, when we think of a person's height, we measure in feet and inches, or sometimes half inches, right? I'm five, nine and a half, because I've shrunk. The more I hurt my back, the more I shrink. <laughs> sometimes we measure in the distance of a trip. I heard, uh, you know, some of us, we measure in the how miles, many miles we've driven. We were talking to Jerry about how many how much gas he used for his motorhome. Uh, that's, how, that's how far he went on his trip, how, much how many gallons he used in his motorhome. And how about this? If sometimes we measure, um, scientists measure the distance of our solar system, right? In, in astro units. Astro units. An astro unit is 93 million miles. Where do they come up with an astro unit? That's how far from the sun uh, to the earth. And they measure our solar system in, in uh, astro units. 93 million miles equals one unit. Then you can measure the, the solar system. The things or the things outside of our solar system. Yeah, that jumps into light years. When they measure the solar system and outside the solar system, they go to light years. So astro units is 93 million. Now that's 5.8 8 trillion miles. One light year equals 5.88 trillion miles. The nearest star, by the way, is, you know, is Alpha Centauri, and that's 4.3 light years from Earth. 4.3 times 5.88 trillion miles. The number, as you can imagine, as we talk about outside of the solar system, and you keep going, the, all of the universe, the measurements keep growing exponentially. The numbers keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yet God only needs the span to measure all of that. That's all he needs. Does that mean that God takes a long time to measure things? No, it just means he has a huge hand. Is God great? Yes. In fact, he encloses the dust of the earth in a measure. The picture of a measure is, is uh, a little scoop of dirt that God, God used. So whether it's water 
the whole universe or just the dirt on the earth, we have an amazing, great God. In fact, Proverbs 21, 11 talks about this. The king's heart, remember the king, a great man, right? A king. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Right? If God can handle such huge things, he can change anybody's heart at any given time as he wills. God can handle such huge things as our universe. Shouldn't he be able to handle the problems that I have in my life? Right? Hudson Taylor said this, the great missionary to China. He said, many Christians estimate difficulty in light of their own resources, right? And thus, they attempt very little, and they often fail. All giants of the faith have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned upon God's power and his presence to be with him. They counted not their greatness, but they counted on the greatness of God. And that's what made them great. Of course, Hudson Taylor said that when people asked him about being a great missionary. The real question isn't how great are your problems. The real question is how great is God? How great is your God? There is only one God and and our one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the thing is, is, but we know God is great, but the question is, is, do you live like God is great? And that's the real question when we think about when you have a high view of God, it can change your life because we realize who God really is. And when we realize who God really is, things begin to dwindle as far as how big our problems really are. They become smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where we don't have to control things. When we really believe and live like God is great, we don't live like we have to control everything around us because we realize that God is in control. And how that looks in our life is, is that we become submissive to God. And when we think of submission, we, we're thinking about we give control to God. We say, God, you are in control. I'm going to trust you. We stop trusting ourselves. We live like God is great. And so when we say a high view of God, this is the reality is we're living as if God is great. We believe it. And so it changes the way we see things, our problems. We see other people, the way we see how we live. The other thing is this, this idea that God is glorious. Hey, what is glorious? Or that God deserves all glory. He doesn't share glory with anybody else. He doesn't like to do that. God is glorious. It's from the word doxa. We, we, see, we know we see the doxology at the end of some songs. We've sung the doxology before. And it simply means this to give a proper estimation or opinion about someone or something. 
is to offer up the proper opinion about something. So when we say that God is glorious, we're saying that we're giving the proper opinion and estimation of how great God is. We're saying he's great. Later on in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 25, he says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. We need to give God a proper estimation of himself. Give glory to God. Because who, who can we compare to God? That's a great question. There is none like God. One common reason why we struggle with sin and we struggle with different problems in our life is that we crave the approval of people or we fear their rejection. We need the, we feel like we need the acceptance of those around us. And so we are then controlled by how we esteem those around us or how we feel they view us. We tend to start to glorify or glory or put an estimation on how people value us. And that minimizes God's glory. It minimizes our view of God. It always diminishes God's glory in our life. The Bible talks about this and it refers to this as the fear of man. We fear man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whose approval really matters to you? Is it God? When we have a high view of God and we, we see God as glorious and we give him his proper estimation of who he is and how big he is, we stop worrying about what people think. And we glorify God. We don't fear man. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said this, Do not fear those who could kill the body but, act, but cannot kill the soul. Jesus said, Rather... Fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Psalm 27, David tells us, The Lord is the light of my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Our fear greatly changes in our life when we see how glorious God is and we continue to give him glory and our view and our estimation of God just continues to grow. The higher our estimation of God, the less we fear. And that's really the point. A lot of times we say, yeah, God is glorious, but we struggle with the fear of others. Because the more that we actually have the right estimation of God, the less we fear others. And we become humble. We become content. We don't worry about what people think. Because see, when we worry about what people think, we become prideful. We, we try to build ourselves up and make ourselves better so that people will like us. And we fear what people think. We, be, we tend to step on others to be better. We are not humble. We have a proper, when humble, what I mean by humble is we have a proper estimation of ourselves. When we're humble, we have a proper estimation of others. 
And it all starts with having the right view, the high vantage point, and seeing how glorious God is. And that brings us to the third one, and that is God is good. When we truly believe that God is good, what are we saying? That God is really good. In John chapter 4, in verse 13 through 24, if, you, if you've read that passage, as you look at it, you know that Jesus is going to a well in Samaria, and he's going to the well to get a drink. And a woman comes out from Samaria, and, and he comes to the well, and, and he says, hey, woman, give me something to drink. And it wasn't being derogatory. It was a standard practice that when you came to the well, that the women would draw the water from the well, and they would give the traveler something to drink. It was kind of the, the typical practice of the day. And what's funny is this, and he said these things. He says, hey, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't just, I, you wouldn't uh, say, here's something to drink, but you would ask me for something to drink because from me comes a river of life. And if you drink from me, you would never be thirsty again. Jesus was talking to her, and as he was talking to her, he was talking about the deepest need that all of us have. We are thirsty people, aren't we? We desire a lot. We're never satisfied. As we live our life in this world, nothing is satisfied. That's why I keep barbecuing. I'm always going to get better. Never satisfied with the last barbecue. Got to do another one. My doctor says, you need to be satisfied. You've had enough. <laughs> and I did. I overate on the beef this, this, uh, this spring. <laughs> the doctor was like, ah, slow down. <laughs> it showed up in my blood work. And, but this is the thing. The greatest need for all people is Christ. And the deepest need of man is the thirst for eternal life, the thirst for God. And it's amazing. And, and people try to stuff this thirst, this need, with all sorts of pleasure and things. TV, movies, power, prestige, all sorts of performance-type things and entertainment to, to satisfy the thirst that we have in our life. Other, other religious sayings, look how good I am. One of the problems is, is that We'll never be full. We'll never have enough. We only think about the moment. I need this. And in the moment, we think the pleasure of sin is it will be enough and I'll be satisfied. And that they're real and that they'll solve a lot of things. And the joy of God is insubstantial or distant. And, oh, I'll get there someday where... I find joy in God and his things, but right now I need this thing. But in truth, it's the other way around. Every joy we experience is but a shadow of the source of all joy, which is God. Sin will never satisfy. We just keep needing more. Notice the woman in verse 19, she then tries to draw Jesus into a debate. Never a good idea, by the way. <laughs> Jesus usually always asks another question, and they realize, oh, I'm dumb. <laughs> when the woman tries to draw Jesus into a worship debate about worship and the controversies, well, we worship here, and you say we have to worship there, and Jesus redefines worship. 
He says, you've lost the whole point. Worship isn't about the location. It's about the attitude of the heart. It's about the heart. And God is the only one that can change the heart. You worship in, you know, what you do not know, Jesus said to the woman. And we need to worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is, tends to be about what you desire the most. We say that God is good, but then we run all week to find something that we want and desire, and we struggle and strive for it, and we forget about God. We think all those things will satisfy us. And Jesus begins to tell the woman, worship is about what you desire the most. It's what you think about the most. And that's why he said in Matthew 6, seek ye first his kingdom, and then all those things will be added unto you. It's about God first. Every time you look to God to satisfy your longings, you worship him in spirit and truth. You believe, you really are trusting that God is good. You're saying he's worth it. And when we do that, we realize we don't have to look elsewhere for pleasure. We don't have to get caught up in the rat race that we call life. We don't, have, we don't need anything else. We, we, we're satisfied. We're content. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2 that we have to have the mind of Christ. In Philippians 3, it's the fact that our greatest treasure is Christ. There is nothing else that we can find confidence in other than in Christ. And by the time we get to verse 4, he says, we can have all joy. I've, I've learned the secret of contentment because I have everything that I need for life in Christ. Right? That's where contentment comes from. Because we truly believe that God is good. When you do that, we stop chasing all these pleasure things. Things to gratify us. Because we truly believe that God is good. That leads us to the last one, and that is God is gracious. A lot of times we, we know that God is good. We know that God is great. We know He's glorious. He's big. He's above all things. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding this one, and that is that God is gracious. We know that, yeah, for by grace that we are saved. It's not about us. It's about what God did for us. He gave us something that we don't deserve. We don't deserve to have a relationship with him. We, we're sinners. We don't deserve to have a relationship with God. And he was gracious. And we know that the work of God on the cross, the work of Christ dying for us and rising again and interceding on our behalf, and, and all of that, that it's a great gift. And we understand that he was gracious when he saved us, but we, we forget that he's gracious every day in our life. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is amazing to show God's graciousness. Here we have the son, the second born, and says, I want my inheritance now. Which, by the way, in that culture was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could take what I want. It was a slap in the face of the dad, but it was even worse than that. It was akin to saying, I want to murder you in that culture. Right? And so he says, give it to me. And the dad gave it to him. The son didn't deserve it, but the father did. And he went off, and what did he do? He squandered it. He partied. He spent it all on pleasure. The son thought, if I just had this inheritance, I would 
I would have everything I need in life. He went from there, partying, spent it all, to working with pigs. You know, for a Jewish person, in that culture, that was the most humiliating thing that you could do. And the pigs were eating better than him, he said. You know, if I just go back and I be a slave in my father's house, they eat better than I eat. I'll go do that. I'm going to go cry, mercy, mercy, mercy. Have mercy on me. Don't kill me. I'll be your slave for the rest of my life. That's much better. That's submission. That's humility. He goes back to the dad, and rather than the dad waiting, by the way, the dad ran ahead and met him on the road. The dad was looking and longing for his son. This tells us all we need to know about God's graciousness. That God is gracious. It's not so much that we need to just know it, but we need to live it out every day. That God is gracious. You know, in the culture, if a son humiliated his father, and if the son wanted to come back and ask for mercy, he had to first go be humiliated through town. They would parade the son through town in that culture, even today, and you know, in the, in, in the Middle East, in that culture, still to this day, if you humiliate a parent in that culture, they would beat you mercilessly and humiliate you through the whole town. Don't be like this guy. Look what it got him. But that's not what the father did. As Jesus is telling the story to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you can only imagine this disdain like, what? The father did what? That was for, they were like, no way. But yet the father was gracious, ran ahead, put on his kingly robe and his ring of authority on his finger and paraded him through town not as a sinner, but as an heir to the throne. Now the son, the oldest son, did not like that, did he? There's a lot of speculation. Jesus never finished the story, by the way. Jews and Jewish culture, they always uh, had a certain amount of lines in, in the stories when they told their stories, and Jesus stopped and didn't share the last line of the story. And most believe, most theologians believe because that was the last part of the story was the, the, the oldest son that, that had the right and had the right to all the father's things, killed the father. And, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hung Christ on the cross. Of course, that was according to God's desire to provide us a perfect sacrifice. Look at this, this story that God gives us, this, this parable really emphasizes the, uh, the most amazing aspects of God's graciousness. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, I always like it when it says that because it tells us we were dead in our sins. We were, we we're dead. We we're, by the way, beyond worthless. Worthless, when somebody says you're worthless, you say thank you because at least I'm not dead. I can still do something else, right? <laughs> but yeah, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
When Christ rose again, when he gave us the gift of salvation, and Christ rose again, we are risen with Christ. This is by grace you've been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, why? Did it end when God saved us? No. Was it just for that time for our salvation or was it something else? And he listened to this, so that. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the big thing. We should get up every day and remind ourselves what we have from God, that God is amazing. He is gracious to us. Every day he's pouring out his grace. He wants to show his riches to you, his great riches of all of his grace. He wants to pour out to us to experience more in our relationship with him. Better works than we can do. The works that he, perfect work that he created for us through Christ. God is gracious, which means we don't have to prove ourselves. You know how futile that is every day going and spending your life to trying to prove yourself. This is how gracious God is. He says, stop trying. Because I've given you everything you need. When we have a high view of God, this is what takes place. We don't crave power anymore. We don't have to try to be better than other people. We don't stop trying to prove ourselves. And we become compassionate. Rather than proving, we become compassionate. Instead of trying to gain power in our life, we become forgiving. This is just four examples of how you view God and how you treat God really matters in our life. When we have a true understanding of God and we have a proper view of God, we, our life begins to change. And he empowers us. As we conclude, I, I want you to think about this. Whether you, you know, you've, you're here and you say, well, yeah, I know God is great and I know that God is good. I know that he is, is glorious and that he's, he's gracious. But are you living like it? James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25 says this, But be doers of the word, not hearers only. James was telling the church and God was telling us that he's not so much, he's not concerned about what you hear, but what you do. Only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And for he looks at himself and then he goes away and forgets what he was like. We come to church every week and we go to Bible studies and, and we do things. And we say, yeah, this is who God is. And man, I remind myself about who I am. But we walk away and we forget and we don't live and we don't take it with us and live like God is good. 
because we are still running after pleasure. Look what it says. It goes again in verse 25. It says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, talking about God's word, the law of liberty, the law, the word that frees us from our sin, from problems, and perseveres, keeps on doing that, being not a hearer who forgets, right? So perseverance keeps on. Yeah, if we're just a hearer, we go and we forget. Oh, yeah, that's right. I am a follower of Christ. <laughs> I don't do those things. Because I trust God. I love God. He's better than the world. But as a doer, as a one who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Right? The doer is the one who's blessed. It's what Ezekiel was saying to Israel. As they come out of captivity in Ezekiel 33, 30 through 32, he said this, as for you, son of man, you, you are people who talk together about you by the walls and, by, and at the doors of the house. Say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the, the word is that comes from the Lord. He said, here, you guys all talk about it. You say, here, come listen to what God says. He says, and they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like, talking about God, you, God, are like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on, on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they won't do it. They are attracted to the good words. They're attracted by what you... They, oh, yeah, it's good to hear what God's... Oh, yeah, God is talking. Let's listen. But we don't need to go do it. That's why Jesus talks about in Mark 7, 6 through 7, as he quotes Isaiah again. In verse 6 of Mark 7, And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy to you, Hypocrites! As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're more concerned about the culture around them, the, the commandments and the ideas of men. And they hear and they say, yeah, we need to worship God. Otherwise, we won't be right with God. And so they vainly say things with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's a real thing. It's easy for us to say, yeah, I know all these things are true. I know God is good. I, I know he's great. I know he's glorious. I know that he is gracious. But the question is, is that just something you know, or is that the viewpoint of your life? As you grow in your estimation and you are lifted up and how, and how great God is, is that change what you're doing with your life? You can enjoy your neighbors rather than complain about your neighbors. You can enjoy your coworkers rather than complain about your coworkers. Because you're more concerned about God. You can enjoy your, your time in school because you're not worried about proving yourself but glorifying God. 
You're more concerned about sharing God's good news than about what people think about you. You're more concerned about worshiping God and and telling Him how great He is than being better than somebody else in church or worrying about how other people view you in church. I know when people have a great view of God because they're honest about their sin before other people. They don't care what other people think. They just say, yeah, you know, this is what I'm really doing, but this is what God is doing. And they glorify God. They're honest about their life. Which one are you? Are you the one that just knows these things about God, or are you the ones that are using what you know to be true about God to let God change the way we live our life? Is your viewpoint obstructed You know God's over there, but is your viewpoint obstructed by a bunch of cultural things and pleasures? Or are you climbing up and saying, oh, I know God's over there. I'm I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm, I'm, I'm getting around these things. I'm not looking at the, you know, you can't see the forest from the trees, right? I'm going to get up as high as I can, and I'm going to go enjoy God. That's what I want to enjoy. Or are you distracted? by what's in front of you. Where are you at? A high view of God matters in our discipleship. A high view of God matters in a changed life. I've heard so many people say, well, yeah, I I knew that God did this for me, but but when 10 years from now, or 10 years later, I I really began to enjoy God. And they say, well, that's when your viewpoint of God shifted and changed your life. Most likely, that's probably when you got saved. <laughs> because you stopped running after the world and you said, yeah, I, I believe God. Believe and repent, the Bible says. For the kingdom of God is at hand. If you're struggling in your walk with God, I challenge you to think about some of these things, about what the Bible talks about, how we view God and how that changes our life. And just pray and consider and evaluate who God is and may that change the way that you look at living. And may you be blessed by the Lord in doing so. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray that we would simply not be hearers only, deceiving ourselves. But Lord, may you continue to help us to be a church, your people, who worship you in spirit and truth, who desire to follow you, to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Help us as we don't want to just become great theologians and know lots of things about you. We can argue all the truths of the Bible, but Lord, we want to be doers of these truths. So help us in that as we think about what does discipleship mean And Lord, what do we need? It's not so much in discipleship. We don't need to just know about you. We need to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray, as Paul prayed, that as the more that we know about you, the more that we read your word, the more that we would love you. And the more that we love you, the more that we would love those around us. Thank you so much for your word and your truth that that strengthens us and helps us to change. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.